0: Um, Luke chapter 13 is where we're going in a couple moments. I think I preached myself hoarse just with the Ric Flair bit, I think is what has happened at this point. Um, spoiler alert. We're, um, we'll go to text in a few minutes. Before we get there, I want to share a little testimony this morning. I was uh, traveling earlier this week, and I don't often talk about that kind of stuff here on Sundays, but I just feel like I really wanted to today because it was such a... Wonderful experience. My good friend Aaron Nequist does a thing called the practice. It's at Willow Creek Community Church in Chicago. They have this alternative liturgical gathering, which is really interesting because I think you know Willow Creek, especially being known as this sort of uh, the prototype for the seeker-sensitive church, to have now this very liturgical space where it's very much oriented around the table. And in fact, we we use some of Aaron's liturgies here, some of the songs and responses he does. Really beautiful stuff. So I love speaking there. I do that four or five times a year. And this past week, uh, they had a retreat, and the speakers on the retreat were myself and Father Michael, Catholic priest. It was at a Catholic retreat center. And I just had um, an especially extraordinary experience, I would say one of my most tangible, just experiences of God's presence of the spirit, for me personally I've had in a while. Part of what was beautiful about it to me is roughly half of the folks who attended that retreat were people that come from backgrounds like so many of us here that are either coming from some kind of evangelical, Pentecostal, charismatic background, where some of those practices and that kind of orientation around the table is somewhat new and f- trying to find ways to integrate these things. So Monday night in particular, I just really feel like God gave me a word for them from a text that's ministered to me a lot in the last couple years, but I kind of heard it in a different way. It's from Acts 27, where Paul's about to have the shipwreck. And he gives this warning, or the encouragement, rather, really. You know, the storm's going to come. We're going to lose the boat. God will protect you. You're not going to lose your lives. But, he says, before the storm comes, you need to eat, or you'll be too weak to survive. So everybody eats. And interestingly enough there, Acts 27 uses very Eucharistic language. Could have a lot of fun with that because he's on a... Uh, boat with Romans. But at any rate, it talks about how he like he, he broke the bread and he ate and he gave thanks. This is the way that in Luke's language, in Luke and Acts, it always cues up for the Eucharist. So anyway, they eat. And I just I really feel like God gave me this word that so many people were there like are, are trying to sort out what within their tradition, how do we relate to Eucharist and how do we come to the table and how do we in, involve all these practices, which inevitably means a lot of like red tape and a lot of like trying to wrestle through things with denominations which I think is great. But just feel like I need to encourage them like, This hunger that God has given you for the Eucharist, this hunger for the body and blood of Jesus is good. God has placed it in you. And while you're trying to work out the details, that's awesome. But in the meantime, you need to eat. So go somewhere. If that's not at your local church, support and be faithful, but sneak a few times a year when you need to to a church across town where you can come to the table and be fed. We did this beautiful service. So I just thought there was something so ironic and wonderful about me as a self-proclaimed Hillbilly Pentecostal preaching a sermon about the Eucharistic table. We lead in that time and then I go right from that, joining everybody else in line, for Father Michael to lay hands on me, anoint me with oil, pray over me. And I had I don't want to like overdo it, but I really had this like jolt in all that. It was like kind of old-time Pentecostal, like he laid hands on me. I was like, what just happened to me? And I thought, what a strange and wonderful time, right? You know, that like hillbilly Pentecostals talk about the Eucharist and then can be laid hands on by Catholic priest and the Holy Spirit be poured out on me. That is a great, great experience. And I just, I just really believe this is part of what God's doing in this time, you know, that the prayer of Jesus in John 17 is being fulfilled, that we might be one as the Father and Jesus are one, and we know this has to happen for the end to come. I, I just... It's an exciting time to be alive. Amen? That's my little testimony. That and also that I'm glad today to be saved, sanctified, filled with the sweet Holy Ghost on my way to heaven. I don't know about you, but I got a made-up mind. (laughs) Nobody else understands my... They don't understand my testimony, Cody. You understand. Cody understands my testimony. (laughs) That's where I come from. We're going to... uh, a, a, a text, speaking of testimonies, that I really love because I also had a, 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 a something worth testifying about with this text. I love to preach through the lectionary because I feel like it places me under the submission. I have to submit the text that I wouldn't otherwise choose. And true story, a few weeks ago, I saw this Sunday coming and was wrestling with it already, and I read the gospel text. Especially in Lynn, I want to preach only the gospel text. And honestly, I read it and I was like, oh, shoot. Like, well, I'm going to deviate from the lectionary text that day because I... I I got nothing about this. Like, we'll just skip that. I'm sure the Holy Spirit has something else. But instead, thankfully, I sat with it for a while. I would say probably a good two or three hours, actually, and finally really felt like something emerged, which to me just said something about the value of this process and what a lot of us are doing in Lent. You do these things that feel random, and you read texts that may not come alive to you at all, but you sit there long enough, and we create that kind of space, and God's able to bring something to us. So anyway, with that in view... Luke chapter 13 is where we're going. Stand with me, if you would, since we are reading from the Gospels. And just as we're kind of recalibrating for that text, just uh, to set the stage a bit, this is a moment uh, where I think, for Jesus, that I think is very much like the moment we're living in right now, where there's a great deal of fear and anxiety in the atmosphere. Palpable sense of dread at this point in Luke. Things have been going well as Jesus has been preaching and teaching and healing people, But we're starting to see the storm clouds gather, that this is not going to end well. Uh, The resistance is coming. Uh, People now are beginning to oppose the message of Jesus. We're watching all of this start to shift by the time we get to Luke chapter 13 and begin with verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came to Jesus and they said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Already plots are being conceived. He said to them, Go and tell that fox for me, Listen. I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day, I must be on my way, because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you were not willing. See, your house is left to you, and I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, I am again arrested by this image all over. Because it's so different from so many of the images that I have of you, as God, as the mother hen who longs to gather the chicks underneath her wings, knowing that we will scatter, knowing that we will reject you, and yet you put yourself out there anyway. Yet you take the risk to love us in such a vulnerable way. Yet you expose yourself to us. Yet you expose your heart to us. I pray, Lord, that this time would be marked by that, God, by a connection with you that is heart to heart, and that as you make yourself known to us, we also unveil our true selves. As you uh, take the risk to extend yourself to us, to offer your very presence to us in the midst of our brokenness, we also uh, disrobe, we also allow ourselves to be vulnerable. We also allow ourselves to be exposed in your presence so that we might be transformed. And I pray, God, especially today, that as we are, are taken deeper into the mystery of your own heart... You would teach us what it is to love the people around us. Teach us what it is to love the world in the same way that you have loved us. Open our hearts now, we ask, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can grab a seat. This is a very different image of God. It is a maternal image. Jesus often offers surprising images us for, the heart of, for the heart of God, a maternal image. It is an image of the mother hen who would do anything to protect her chicks. She vulnerably extends her wings. She opens herself up and yet they continue to run. This gives us an image for the heart of God broken for his people. The same kind of image that we get in the book of Hosea, for example, where God tells Hosea, let me let you taste a little bit of what it's like to be me And essentially what he really wants to say is, let me let you know a little bit about what it's like to be me loving you. (laughs) This is what it's like for me to love you, to extend myself, to offer myself vulnerably, to be rejected over and over again, and yet continue to take that risk to love anyway. This is an image Jesus gives us of God. And for me, there's something especially striking about this, that this is the response of Jesus in a time where there is so much fear and it would seem to be so much reason to be afraid Surely the disciples don't want to hear Jesus talking like this. When you hear that Herod is making plots, when you hear the bad guys are out to get you, you don't want to hear Jesus talking about his death. You don't want to hear Jesus giving this kind of image that might even be seen as a kind of weakness that of, of God extending wing, his wings while the chicks are scattering. We want an image of strength here. We want God to tell us that we're going to be okay, that everything's fine, that there's nothing to worry about, nobody's really going to do us any harm. We want to be told that we're going to be safe, that we're going to be protected, that God is going to protect us. So I'm thinking about this, and I know this is so random, but it's how my head works, right? So this week, I watched a particular political speech, and it was the kind of speech where everybody was really going, and the crowd was like really electric, and in the way that politicians do in the season, making lots of big promises. We're going to do this, and we're going to do that, and we're going to get the bad guys, and I'm going to keep you safe, and like all of these things. And somehow, as I'm listening to this, there was just something about the cadence and tone that reminded me, it's super weird, but it reminded me of the nature boy, Ric Flair. I don't know how much you guys know about the nature boy, Ric Flair in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, Ric Flair is the greatest export of Charlotte, North Carolina ever in history. He is the greatest thing to ever have in Charlotte. Charlotte is home for the nature boy even now. In fact, true story, uh, back in my hometown, I used to get my hair cut at the same salon as Ric Flair. He does come in in his late 60s now and get that hair bleached every two weeks. I mean, I would get so excited when I would see him there. I would see him at the local deli. A couple times I would call people and, like, have Ric Flair leave them messages and stuff. I would get so, so excited because I was a lifelong fan of professional wrestling. And Ric Flair is, in my opinion, the greatest wrestler of all time. If, if you've ever seen the Nature Boy, you, like, nobody, just nobody has swagger like that. Nobody has style like that. We're, like, the glitzy robes. And yeah, Ric Flair, right? I mean, he is the limousine-riding, jet-flying, wheeling-dealing, kiss-stealing. He's the nature boy. And one of the things I love most about Ric Flair, like, one of the things I love most, it wasn't just what he did in the ring. Ric Flair could just, nobody talked like Ric Flair. Like, nobody had that, like, in an interview. And, all, like, so I'm listening to this political speech, and all of a sudden, like, I'm hearing Ric Flair channel this somehow. And it starts to collapse in my mind. Like I'm wanting to, so I'm, I'm, I'm hearing Ric Flair in this moment, and the Nature Boy is saying, whether you like it or whether you don't, whoa, Four Horsemen, learn to love it, because it's the best thing that's happening in wrestling today. Whoa, and then he would strut. And I'm seeing this in my mind. And I'm hearing the Nature Boy say, Space Mountain may be the oldest ride in the park, whoa, but it's still got the longest line, whoa. And like, I'm just, it just felt so good. And I'm like, give me that. Give me the Nature Boy. Tell me when the bad guys come, the four horsemen are going to meet them at the gate. See, is a prophetic figure. It's the four horsemen of the apocalypse. <laughs> that when Herod comes, we're going to put him in the figure four leg lock. This is what I want from Jesus here. No talk of mother hens gathering chicks underneath his wings. Give me some... I want somebody to get smacked down here. That's what I'm looking for. And yet Jesus offers no reassurance. He does not say that there's no reason to be afraid. He does not say... That God is necessarily going to protect us? Can I connect with Chris Green's amazing message from last week? Because God is not in control. God is sovereign. (laughs) Doesn't mean bad things won't happen. Absolutely might. Sometimes they must. Sometimes the road will only get darker. And yet the image that we get of God here is of the one who continues to extend himself. The God who continues to put his heart out there knowing good and well he'll be rejected. Weeps over Jerusalem, mourns over Jerusalem, laments. How long I have longed, I have desired to gather you up under my wings, but you were not willing. That is, the, for me, just the ultimate picture of who God is and what God is like. He's willing to do absolutely anything to get his sons and daughters home, except coerce us. He will do anything but force us. Isn't that surely at least part of the message of the cross? Is that God would do anything to draw us close to himself, but not make us. So instead of forcing us, God lays down his great power in a way that draws us close. Part of what's disruptive for me about reading that in Lent, you know, we set this series up. The reason it's called The Way of the Cross is that we wanted the focus to be on this idea that Lent is not just about reflecting on what God did for us through Jesus on the cross as in Jesus died for me. We believe that that's true. But there's this other part of that message that the same one who died for us on the cross now looks at us and says, take up your own cross and follow me. Which is why a political rally for Jesus would never work great because this is never gonna be a good stump speech. (laughs) Take up your cross. Who wants to hear that? This is not the kind of talk that we wanna hear. And yet it's the way of the kingdom. The way of the kingdom is the way of the cross. And it always means that it will end up with our we will end up with our arms outstretched it means our own chest will be exposed we will be laid bare in some way barbara brown taylor i think is one of our great preachers has this amazing amazing passage about this text where she writes jesus won't be king of the jungle in this or any other story what he will be is a mother hen who stands between the chicks and those who mean to do them harm she has no fangs No claws, no rippling muscles. All she has is her willingness to shield her babies with her own body. If the fox wants them, he will have to kill her first, which he does, as it turns out. He slides up on her one night in the yard while all the babies are asleep. When her cry awakens them, they scatter. She dies the next day where both foxes and chickens can see her, wings spread, breast exposed, without a single chick beneath her feathers. It breaks her heart, but it does not change a thing. If you mean what you say, this is how you stand. Isn't that extraordinary? This is how love stands. This is how God stands. Arms stretched open. If you've ever loved anybody truly, you know that all love ultimately leads to a cross. It's the only place love can take you. Is to your own crucifixion. Inevitably, it means that you're going to get your heart broken. Um, I, I, I think again, there is just something vulnerable about love itself—loving anybody or anything—that means almost entails that you have to get hurt. So it's not a question of if; it's a question—it's a question of when. And I think that's true for any relationship. If you're wondering whether or not you're ever going to come for a moment where the people that you love the most are going to profoundly disappoint you, where you're going to feel let down, maybe even betrayed, I promise you, it will happen if it hasn't happened already. Because it's the nature of of all human relationships. We lay ourselves bare. We make ourselves vulnerable. Inevitably, we get let down. And yet there's something about that experience, I think, that's so important for us. Because it is precisely that heartbreak that pushes us deeper into the heart of God that teaches us what it is to identify with the way that God loves us. And that's the really stinging part, right? Is that we always find out, this is what it feels like for God to love us. This is what it feels like for God to love me. To continue to put himself out there over and over again, knowing I'm gonna reject, knowing I'm gonna be finicky, knowing I'm gonna do my own thing, and yet he continues to to make himself vulnerable over and over again. Lent is about this time where we're journeying with Jesus. So if we want to develop the heart of God, if we want to begin to live like Jesus, that means we have to follow him into this kind of space, into that place of vulnerability, into that place of being exposed, into that place where instead of self-protection, and hear me when I say this, it's impossible to love anybody and self-protect at the same time. It just doesn't work. The very moment we begin to guard our own hearts, the very moments we begin to protect ourselves, which is natural, by the way. When you get your heart broken, the first, you, you get defensive, right? It's, a, it's kind of a natural mechanism. When you, as so many of you have, when you go to a church and you've trusted people around you, trusted leadership, whatever, and you feel somehow hurt or let down, the instinct is, I'll never do that again. I don't want to have that experience. When your heart is broken in a, in a romantic relationship, what's the first response? I'll never love anybody again. Happens in friendship all the time where you extend yourself towards somebody, you feel rejected in some way, and immediately you start to build those walls. You start to build those walls. And yet, here we are in this time of year when there's so much panic in the air, and there's such a temptation to want to build a wall. There's such a temptation to want to build fences. And it's the time actually where the people of God, instead of building fences, are erecting crosses. (laughs) This is the moment. This is the moment where instead of self-protection... We're offering up our own very lives, knowing it may not necessarily end well. The reason that we're able to do this is because as Christians, we believe in a God of resurrection. That's the only way we're able to do this, is that death does not have the final word for us. Death is not the ultimate thing to be afraid of. When we think about the worst case scenario, what could happen, what might happen? For Christians, I say this so often, the worst thing that could happen has already happened. In that we crucified the Son of Love. God came to us and we killed him. Yet God has overcome through resurrection. This is the reason we don't have to be afraid. This is the reason we can afford to be vulnerable. It's because we know that even if we lose our lives, that we have a God who raises from the dead. That's why we don't have to live in fear. Does it make it easy? Does it make me want to do it any more than you do? I want to self-protect, I want to be safe. I want God to tell me that I'm going to be saved. I don't want to put my heart out there day after day knowing that inevitably means I'm going to be rejected. I want to be able to use some of these defense mechanisms. I had this memory this week that I haven't had in so long and seems so terribly random. And yet for me, it just kind of connects to that feeling because I do think it is the absolute worst experience, right, when you try to love in a vulnerable way or you share something that you love in a vulnerable way and you feel rejected in some way. When I was four years old, a little bit of group therapy here. When I was four, I went to preschool. I remember next to nothing about preschool. I'm sure it was a fine experience. Best as I recall, I think my teacher was a nice lady. But actually, I only have one specific memory that I can really recall when I was four. And it was like every week we did this deal where there was like show and tell. And everybody could come and bring one of their favorite objects, show it to the class. I was so excited because at that point in my life, I had a Bugs Bunny album, like an LP on on vinyl that I just loved. It was Bugs Bunny and the Looney Tunes friends, like singing little fun songs. I was so excited to share my favorite record with the class. So I brought it and I knew that in the liturgy of preschool, that show and tell came right after the sing-along time. So like during sing-along, I was barely paying attention, barely singing the song because I just couldn't wait for that moment where I could shoot it in my hand and say, can we play my Bugs Bunny? So I was on standby for this. So we're singing the song, First verse, chorus, second verse, chorus. I thought the song was over. And because I was so excited, I threw my hand up and I immediately blurt out, hey, can, can we listen to my book's bunny record now? And at the same time that I do that, she starts to lead everybody into like the third verse. And then, every, and then everybody stops singing and just looks at me and it gets quiet and awkward. I, I can't believe how still this gets right now when I, remember, like I can enter that moment fully. I'm four years old. She looks around the room real slowly, like pans all over the room. Boys and girls, did you hear that? Jonathan Martin wants to know if we can listen to his Bugs Bunny record right in the middle of our song. <laughs> and then she looks at me and says, Absolutely no! <laughs> Hold me, someone please. This is my Pastor Brent. This is why I'm in therapy with Brent right now. It was just for things like this. It is so weird to me that that is the only thing I can remember about preschool. Like, the, I mean, and I know that's not especially awful, but for me, like, that's the rate. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for that, guys. Very tender place still. It's so weird for me how much that that's just how, like, our memory works in general. And I, I, I'd like to think that I operate in a healthier place now than I ever have in this category but it's still true to a point, point. 99 people can tell me that a sermon was awesome, and one person says something critical or ugly, oh, you know what I'm going to be thinking about till 3 o'clock in the morning? Oh, it's going to keep me up late at night, and I'm going to think about that one person, I'm going to think about that one remark, and I'll stew about it over. This is the healthy version of me, that it only lasts one night. Like, it's, it's so weird to me how that works, that any moment where we feel like we've put ourselves out there and somehow feels rejected, like, that's the thing that you remember, and what we're learning physiologically is that we don't just remember these things in our mind. Our bodies actually store that information. Like we actually, the, we actually remember these things on a cellular level. So the next time there's an opportunity to really put ourselves out there, the next time that there's an opportunity to step out of the vulnerability of love and share something that's within us, like I want to share my Bugs Bunny record, we know that no might come. So I think I'll just sit here. I think I'll just not raise my hand. I think I'll just go on about my business. And every time we're hurt, that is the instinct. Let's just wall up. Let's just self-protect in some way, which seems like it'd be smarter, right? It seems like somehow we could keep ourselves safe. Part of the issue, though, I don't think I've said this in other services, is that unfortunately it just doesn't work. (laughs) No matter how much you try to self-protect, the fox is still going to come regardless You can't really protect yourself, but what happens though is that in the same way that we shut ourselves off from giving ourselves away in this regard, from exposing our heart in this way, we also shut off from being able to receive the love of God and being able to receive the grace of God in our lives. It just makes everything worse. So instead of setting us free somehow, we just get all the more bound up. Part of what I think we need to focus on, especially during this season of Lent, is what would it look like for us? To begin to love the people around us in the same way that Jesus loves us. As we see Jesus weeping, as we see him lamenting over Jerusalem, yet still the image is how, long, how much I want to gather you. The wings are still spread out, chest exposed. What would it look like for us to love the people around us in that way? What would it look like for us to create space to do this, even though we know inevitably it means that we very likely will get hurt? It's not a question of if, just a question of when. Part of what for me is so striking about this, though, is that it is precisely this image of the hen, the maternal image of God here, who extends himself in this way, that actually reveals to us the strength of God. This is what the power of God looks like. That's part of what for me is so weird about the power of God, is that it always calls into question every other form of power. It doesn't look like the power of the world. It's not what the world would call power at all. No wonder again. This doesn't go over well for a campaign speech. I keep thinking about Revelation in particular, and I do love the Book of Revelation these days. I didn't used to, and it means so much to me now. At some point, I'm going to follow through on my thread and teach about Revelation at length here, because I just I see it so differently now. But part of you know, in Revelation, we get this very what would seem to be different image of God. In fact, it would seem to be diametrically opposed. If the image of God in Luke 13 is the mother hen who spreads out her wings. To gather the chicks, even though they continue to run and they continue to scatter. Revelation, we get this image of Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah, especially in a fearful time. That's the image of God I want. I want to anchor down on that one. I want the lion of the tribe of Judah who is like, rawr, <laughs> just the way lions sound. I, and I was going for it that time, too. <laughs> like I want the lion who's going to pounce and who's going to devour and you know protect like that's a wonderful image right this the strength of God and yet even in revelation we only make it a few verses before even that image is kind of flipped upside down because what it actually says is that John hears a voice that says behold the lion of the tribe of judah then he turns and looks and what he sees is not a lion at all what he sees is a lamb standing as if slain. That's what the strength of God looks like. That's what the lion-like power of God, that's how the lion-like power of God is expressed, is through the crucified lamb. And part of what will change your reading of Revelation forever is if you come to see this. I know there's a lot of violent imagery there, but continually, this is the point that's made over and over again through a series of different scenes. God overcomes... The forces of death, hell, and the grave through God's own sacrifice. Through It is the lamb that is slain is the lamb that conquers. The lamb that overcomes, does it overcome despite his death? Does it overcome despite the crucifixion? But precisely through it. I don't know how to make sense of that. But Paul tells us the same thing. That it's through the crucifixion of Jesus. That the forces of sin and death are actually dethroned. That is where the principalities and powers are exposed, is through the death of Jesus. We can't understand how that works. How is it that love conquers through sacrifice? How is it that God wins, love wins? Not through the lion that comes to savage and destroy, but through God laying him on his own self bare through his own death through his own sacrifice this is how love conquers in the book of revelation i'm convinced this is how love conquers now it's the way of the kingdom it's the way of the cross what that means is we have to let go we have to stop clinging on to our own lives we have to stop preserving we have to stop protecting this is what jesus meant precisely when he tells us that if any that if we want to lose that we want to find life rather we have to lose it we lose life in order to find it. We loosen our grip. That's the other thing that comes through loud and clear through the book of Revelation. Is the people of God now are the people who fo- I love that part of that verse, who follow the lamb wherever he goes. We follow the lamb. We imitate the lamb. Whatever the lamb does, that's what we do. He's the one that we follow. Richard Bauckham says in his great commentary on Revelation that in the book of Revelation, whatever the lamb does is what God does. That, become, that for me is a whole way of reading scripture, not just, like, not just Revelation. What you see the lamb doing is what you see God doing. If you want to know what God's doing in the world, don't look for some spectacular display of divine power. Where do you see sac- sacrifice? Where do you see self-sacrificial, self-emptying love? Where do you see someone laying their own life on the line for the sake of someone else? That's always what God is doing. That's always how God is breaking in. And we are called to follow him. I think we have that verse from Revelation 12. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony and did not love their own lives even unto death. Not loving their own lives even unto death. Not clinging to their own lives. Not building walls. Not building fences not self-protecting, but offering ourselves, putting ourselves out there, knowing good and well, it means that we're inevitably going to get hurt. We don't really love anybody that we don't give permission to hurt us. That is just the really bad news. There is nobody in my life that I love that doesn't have permission to hurt me. Do you hear what I'm saying? If they're not able to hurt me, then I'm not, I'm not vulnerable yet enough to really love them. If my heart isn't exposed, if there's not at least the possibility of rejection, if there's not the possibility of betrayal, if there's not the possibility of being let down, it's not love. And what an awful thing it seems to try to live in that place until again we we remember that this season leads us not just to the cross, but ultimately to resurrection. That that rejection, that pain, that hurt presses us more deeply into the experience of the death and crucifixion of Jesus. The more we identify with Christ in his death, the more we then share in the hope of resurrection. Do you hear what I'm saying right now? The more you press into the death of Christ, the more you're making space for the resurrection power of Christ. We believe in a God who raises from the dead. So what's the worst thing that can happen? Even no matter how much we're killed, no matter how much we're rejected. Paul says that in Romans 8. We're counted like sheep for the slaughter. We're killed all the day long. And yet, the reason that we can face these powers without fear is because we know that God resurrects us from the dead. In the meantime, we have to go the way of the cross. In the meantime, we have to go the way of the kingdom. Now, I could, I could talk about this in 800 ways, and I would love to do it like in a, in a big... Broadway to talk about the posture of the church, capital C, in this time. I like it when I say things. It's funny to me when I say things like that. Like, I'm not going to talk about that and then I'm talking about it. But I'm only talking about it for a second, okay? About the posture of the church in this time. Because I do feel like right now that I'm, we, we see a phenomenon where we see Christians acting and speaking out of a place of fear rather than the courage and vulnerability of love, instead of that tenacious thing that allows us to identify with Jesus and put ourselves out there, we also become the ones who are talking a lot about protecting. and We're also the ones who are all about keeping the bad guys out. All these things are just are antithetical to the gospel of Jesus. But I'll save that for another day, believe it or not, because I feel so pressed today that rather than making this an abstract big idea, that it needs to be so personal and so particular, right? Because the reality is, right now, everybody here has a particular person in your life that you just find it outrageously hard to love right now you know not talking about some situation where there's already great healing in your heart and things have moved on something right now that it's really a raw sensitive place where you know that inevitably to continue to love right now is to leave yourself exposed if i haven't said this in the service and i don't think i have I would want to give the disclaimer that I'm not talking about abuse here if that needs to be said. I'm not saying if you're in an abusive relationship, stay in that. Opposite of that, run, and we will do everything we can to help you. That's not what I mean. There are limits to this in that regard. But I do think that there's a real way that the only way that we mature spiritually, the only way we grow into Christlikeness, oh, imagine that. If growing into Christlikeness means that we're going to be conformed to the image of the crucified one, guess what that means for us? (laughs) There's no way into this without a cross. If the goal is conformity to Jesus, then that means we must be cruciform. That means our lives are going to have to be shaped in that of a cross. That means, yes, a life where over and over again you put your heart out there knowing good and well you're going to get hurt. Knowing good and well you're going to be rejected. And instead of resenting that, instead of stewing over it, put yourself out there anyway find the courage to do it again another day. And this has to play out in real life and real relationships. So I'm just wondering what this looks like right now for some of you who have kids who right now are rebelling and things at home are really strained. And maybe you're even seeing self-destructive choices. And especially because you do have this father, mother, heart of God, everything in you would want to, like, you, of course you want to make different decisions for them. People ask me these questions a lot. Like, you know, uh, in the, this very kind of scenario, my kid is acting out in this way, what am I going to do? We People ask this question with regards to husband and wife kind of relationships. I, I'm trying to love my spouse well, and they continue, what am I going to do for a coworker? for a friend? What am I going to do? And you know the really depressing answer to that question? Let's frame it like this. What are you going to do? What can you do? Right? You can bow up if you want to. You can... Entrench yourself if you want to. You can give a speech, which is what I'm inclined to do when my feelings are hurt, right? Then you start thinking about it over and over again, and you think in the shower about the speech you wanna give. And maybe in good southern vernacular, maybe you do find that moment where you actually give that person what we call the what-for. It's a theological term, the what-for. And you give, give that person a piece of your mind, you straighten them out, and of course, normally, that works out awesome, like nine times out of 10. <laughs> it ends in repentance. Has that been your experience? Like you just let somebody have it and all of a sudden like, oh, thank you so much. I, I just didn't see it that way before. But please take me to your church. Can Pastor Brent lead me to Jesus? Like, and then they receive communion, they're baptized, and everything is awesome. That's happened like never for any of us. Like it all, It's always the opposite. Always the very moment that then we respond out of fear, we respond out of our own sense of hurt or rejection, it never leads anywhere good, and yet it's still our inclination. We still think somehow that's going to work, or we hope it's going to, it doesn't work. What are you going to do? I'll tell you what you can't do is control anybody else's behavior. Oh, that's terrible. You cannot control anybody else's behavior. You can't control their choices. You can't control their responses. You can only control you, and you have the option of either getting into self-protection mode, self-preserving, holding your heart at bay, keeping yourself back, or we could climb up on a cross and trust that maybe in that mysterious way that somehow God might use that. See, there's something to me. Jesus says, "If, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all people to myself, right? There's something about the beauty of the cross, that it is precisely in the moment when we love people and it's costing us something and it's making us bleed. There's something beautiful in that that draws people. There's something of the power of God that's unleashed in that that can make a real change in the world. Nothing else can change the world. Nothing else can, can change our lives except the power of that cross, except entering into that kind of death. Terrible, terrible news. And yet, here's the thing I would say to him, then I'm really done, I promise while it's kind of horrifying, there's a weird kind of freedom to that too, you know? Because so long as we're clinging on to life and we're kind of posturing like this, this has been my experience at least, when I'm clinging on to things, then the very moment, because again, the fox is gonna come, the attack is gonna come regardless, when something starts to get pried out of my hands, oh, every, every inch hurts, doesn't it? Like each finger and I'm like resisting. And yet when you learn to live open-handed, and you're not surprised when you're rejected. You're not surprised when you're hurt. You're not clinging on to life. It's amazing how those things don't have the same power over you anymore. And that's part of what I feel like I need to say. I don't think I've said it that way at any service. Is that some of this, I, I, this isn't just about loving the world well. I'm appealing to you for the sake of your own freedom. That until you come to live in that open-handed, open-hearted kind of way, you can't be free. So long as you're clinging on and and trying to self-protect in some way, you're not free. And the very people that you're trying to protect yourself from, you're actually giving them power over you that they're not supposed to have. When we learn to live open-hearted and open-handed, that's when we're able to operate in the liberty of the Spirit to where things can happen in any number of directions. But we trust the God of resurrection ultimately to make things right knowing the results just aren't up to us. Stand with me, if you would. (laughs) Again, understanding why this is not good political talk. At Jesus' stump speech, nobody walks away and says, I tell you, that Jesus, he he really makes a lot of sense. (laughs) It's always the opposite of, what is that? And yet we know that the way of the cross, the way of the kingdom offers such liberty. Would you close your eyes with me? And I want you just to think for a moment. Just to go on a um, hopefully a spirit led journey here for just a second, just to be open to whoever, whatever the situation. I want to keep it on whoever, whoever the Holy Spirit brings to your mind right now that you're just having a really hard time loving because you, from experience, now know that when you love in this way, when you make yourself exposed in this way, inevitably it means you get hurt. And everything in you right now wants to uh, protect self. Everything in your heart right now wants to erect a wall or a fence. Try to keep that out. I want to open you to the possibility that it may be precisely that person where even the thought of them right now means that your heart is pricked. Even the thought of that person right now means there's a kind of pain, a sensitivity there. That's exactly where the Holy Spirit wants to work. That's exactly where the Spirit is calling you to be tender so, Lord, right now we take those people in those situations and we bring them in to the light of your presence, knowing we are not capable of loving in the way that you love us. Unless somehow you love through us. Unless somehow we become a vessel of your love. All we want to do is hide and protect. All we want to do is guard ourselves. All we want to do is find some way to not get hurt again. And yet we hear you, Spirit, calling us once again to the edge calling us again right out into that place where inevitably um, the wind is going to come. Whenever the, the fox will come, the attackers will come, we know it's gonna mean pain. And yet we also know somehow this way of the cross is the way of resurrection too. So teach us how to not protect ourselves. Teach us how to not guard our hearts. Teach us how to not control people and to trust you with outcome. Teach us how to love the way that you love us. Presses deeper into your own heart, Father. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.